Welcome to my study on understanding the book of Acts. These messages were given live during my regular Sunday morning services. Now, while each of these messages are able to help you as a standalone message, I recommend listening from the beginning because they do build on one another. Now, I pray these help you in your journey of understanding God's word. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. Let's get to the message. Um, so today we are starting a new journey for this year. And the, the topic for this year, the theme for this year basically is walk with me. And, um, I started thinking about this a lot of months ago and, um, trying to figure out why, um, I never actually understand why God is leading us in a certain direction when it comes to teaching or, or, or directions for the year. Um, but, uh, I thought I had an idea why we were going in this direction. Um, but given everything that is going on in our world, um, I think I have a better idea now why God is bringing us in the direction that he's bringing us. So um, what we're going to be doing throughout this year is we're going to be walking through various parts of the Bible um, and discussing theology. We're going to be discussing principles. We're going to be discussing the character and nature of God. Um, and we're going to be, more importantly, learning how to approach the scriptures in a practically and biblically sound manner. Okay, now... Um, what we're going to be doing today is starting this process, and we're going to be starting in the book of Acts. Um, and now, we're starting the book of Acts for a couple of different reasons. Um, it is a very highly regarded book within within especially the charismatic non-denominational churches, um, and it has been, the, the teachings um, have been, uh, in the book of Acts, have been elevated to such a high degree um, that, here, let me, let, me, let me start this process here too. Yeah, there you go. I've got to get that up there and get it out of the way. Um, but the teachings in the book of Acts have been elevated to such a high degree, they've almost kind of taken on a life of their own. Um, and it is very highly revered to, through a lot of the church, but it is also, the reason why we're starting here, is it is also a very highly abused book and misused book. And that's kind of what we're going to be focusing on as we lay the foundation for this conversation throughout the year. Now, um, in some churches around the, around the world, um, it's not, if you've been in the church for any length of time, it's not uncommon to see and hear things like, oh, the church just needs to get back the way thing, to the way things were in the book of Acts. And that's kind of the, kind of a lot of the mentality that goes towards it. Um, and some of the passages that we find in the book of Acts are not only revered almost above other books, they're laid down as kind of a foundation for the church for all time. And we've got to, we've got to navigate that because in some, some cases, that's just not, not a good way of looking at it. For an example, um, if you take the idea of speaking in tongues, which is found in Acts chapter two, that has been elevated in some groups to such a high degree that it is actually used as proof or some sort of validation as someone's, uh, for one's salvation. And the problem is the groups that do this, are not only wrong, and, and yeah, you did hear me wrong. I'm telling you, they're wrong. They're not only wrong, they're they're also really butchering the word of God and twisting it in a way to make it fit their personal beliefs. And this is what we're going to be talking about today. So the the real problem with people who do this is not that they're evil or mean or anything like that. No, they're they're holding to these views because this is what they've been taught. They, they've it's it's a, a lot of what we hold on to as our own personal views. That it stems a great deal from what we have been taught over the years. Um, so if you think about this, a lot of churches around the world teach a process that is called is e- more easily recognizable as denominationalism. Um, 
And what I mean by that is they're taught what to think because they're a fill-in-the-blank with the denomination, but they're not taught how to think about the Bible for themselves. If you've ever heard someone say, well, I don't believe that because I'm Catholic, or I believe this because I'm Baptist, or I believe this because I'm non-denominational. Non-denominational churches like to think we're not a denomination. We really are a denomination. We just don't like to admit it. Um, But no matter how correct that view might be, the fact that you belong to a denomination does not mean that you're in right standing with God. Your your church and your denomination does not save you. Your denomination cannot get you into heaven. You don't stand before God in judgment and say, yes, Lord, I, I, I know I, I had a questionable life, but I belong to XYZ church. It, it makes no difference whatsoever. It's the word of God that is the absolute true authority in our life for all areas of life, family, morality, ethics, etc. It's the word of God alone, not the word of our denomination. So one of the things we're going to be doing today is laying a foundation for this discussion um, and learning how to approach the word of God in a way that helps us avoid this problem. Okay? Um, and I actually think there's really no better way to, no better place to start this than in the book of Acts. And we're going to kind of set the stage for this as we go along. Um, so as we walk together in this process, more than likely you may have one of your own longstanding views challenged, um, in this process. This is a good thing. Now, whether you change your mind or not is irrelevant, but challenging your views is a good thing because there is a profound difference between knowing what you believe and knowing why you believe it, okay? Um, and this is what my church teaches is not a good enough reason to believe something. You need to search these things out for yourself. doesn't matter how, how, how brilliant or how studied that person is. If you're not taking your faith personally, that's a mistake. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how brilliant I might be. Um, you shouldn't just take my word for it, okay? You should be seeking these things out for yourself. Um, just do it in a good way biblically sound manner, okay? So let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean by how we can take sections of Scripture and twist them to mean what we want them to mean. Well, one one example primarily, and then we'll get on to the rest of today's message. Um, one of the things that is very common in the charismatic church, and a lot of what I'm going to be doing is, as far as critical comparisons um, as we're walking through this, is I'll probably be focusing primarily on the charismatic, the, nomina- the non-denominational church, which is us, by the way. Uh, because if we're not willing to examine our own teachings critically, then we have no right to examine anybody else's. So we have to understand our side first if we're going to be examining anybody else's teachings. So I'm going to be focusing primarily on this. So in a lot of charismatic churches, I have heard this. I've been a Christian for 27 years now, um, coming up on 28. And um, so... For years, as long as I've been in the church, honestly, I have heard people talk about the power, the spiritual power of Peter um, in, in Jerusalem and how he would walk through the streets of Jerusalem and his shadow would fall over people and heal them. That's how much power he had in, uh, you know, in, in his life. That's how close he walked with God. And, you know, for a long time I was like, ooh, wow, that is amazing. Um, the problem is the passage that's used to validate that teaching is Acts, Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Now, now check this out. 
This is now. This is what the passage says. And I've already told you what the commonly held belief is, but now let's look at what the passage says. It says, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. They were all in with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet um, yet none of the rest dared join them, uh, but the people esteemed them highly. So in in Jerusalem, the 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 the, the church was was well known wasn't necessarily well liked but it was well known um but people people appreciated their 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 dedication to what they were doing so it says and believers were increasingly added to the lord uh to the lord multitudes of both men and women so that they brought out the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches pay attention to this that at least the shadow of peter passing by might fall on some of them also, multitudes gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing the sick, uh, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, here's the problem. Nowhere in that passage does it say that the shadow of Peter healed. What it says was there was a great number of healings within the city, but nowhere in the passage does it say that the shadow of Peter healed. The reason why that we assign that belief to it is because the the end of verse 16 says, and they were all healed. So we attach that to the idea of people bringing uh, bringing the sick out in the streets and laying them on mats and couches so that the shadow of Peter would pass over them. But the passage doesn't say that it's his shadow healed. You see, what we've done is that we have imposed our personal or denominational presupposition onto the passage, okay? So let me explain what I mean by uh, by presuppositional. Um, a presupposition is a viewpoint that you bring into a situation, okay? It's something that you already believe to be true, because, and because you believe it, it affects how you see things around you. Okay. Now, if you think about a pair of colored glasses, you know, if I'm wearing, if I'm wearing red sunglasses, okay, and they have red lenses, when I put those on, I'm going to see everything around me with a tint of red to it. Okay. My presuppositions do very much the same thing with my viewpoints within a situation. So if I grew up with the belief that Peter's shadow could heal, when I read that passage, I'm going to read that into it until I pull back and just read the passage for what it says. So I have to get my presuppositions out of the way so I can just pay attention to what is being taught. That is not an easy thing to do because we have to kind of fight our way through things that we may have held for, uh, views that we may have held for a long period of time. Um, this is not very fun, but this is what is referred to as building a solid theology. Um, and in the in the time and culture and days that we're living in, church, we need a sound theology. We need sound doctrinal understanding and biblical understanding so that we can make good decisions and not be swayed by the by the the wind you know the blowing winds of society. They're not supposed to be what influences us. Um, the word of God is what should be influencing us. Okay? Um, now but the problem is building a solid theology and thinking about things biblically is not necessarily very fun, which is why there are, you know, completely sold out nerds like me. Um, now especially for charismatic churches, you know. Um, charismatics, we love, we love to read into passages. We love to to impose our views onto passages because we love 
to find the things hidden between the lines. Um, we love to find the secrets that God reveals only to the super faithful, right? Now, no matter how amazingly cool you might be, God's revelation to us is complete. It's found in this. It's the word of God. And I want to show you something um, because this is, this is hard to understand sometimes. But I'd like you to please take a look at this. And if you notice, the only thing between the lines is space. We don't go into God's word looking for the secrets that only the super faithful can find. We go into God's word to find his truth that is found in his character and nature and how he interacts with man. Um, when we get into, when we get into God's word and we think that he's revealing something to only us because we're so amazingly faithful, so much more elevated than everybody else. What we end up doing is we end up judging people who don't see what we see. And we elevate ourselves to a position that does not belong to us. And honestly, a lot of the times, what we think we see isn't there. What we think we're seeing in the passage doesn't necessarily mean it's there. Just because we want it to be there does not mean that it's actually there. Our job as believers and as purveyors of God's truth is to get into his word and find out what it says. How many of you have heard this over the years? What does this part of the Bible mean to you? When you read the Bible, what does it mean to you? And if you've been around this church long enough, you've heard me say this a hundred times. It doesn't matter what it means to you. What it means to you is irrelevant. The question for all of us is, what does it mean? That's it. You know, um, as Christians, one of the healthiest things that we can do is to periodically search out and challenge our own beliefs, right? Um, to make sure that we know not only what we believe, but why we believe it and where to go to validate that belief. Now, just because you believe something to be true does not mean that it's true. Let me give you an example. I can believe with all of my heart that little Debbies are made from all natural organic ingredients. I can believe that with all, I have faith to believe that little Debbie farms all those things herself. They're all organic. They're all natural. No preservatives of any of that stuff. I can believe that to my dying day until I read the ingredient list and I find out that my beliefs are baseless. Turns out that white stuff in the middle of those cookies, it's not actually cream. There's actually nothing dairy about it. Not really sure what it is. It's delicious, but I'm not sure what it is. Now, there's a very old saying, ignorance is bliss, right? Now, it, it, that's only true because when you don't actually know what you're talking about, you can say anything you want. And there's as long as you're not talking to people who do know what they're talking about— Anything goes. You can say whatever you want. It's like little kids arguing over who's who's better, Superman or Batman. It makes no difference to them. They're real people. But when you decide to take the time to increase your knowledge and understanding on any given subject, for those of you who have been in your careers for a long time and you've developed a very intense understanding of the, of the subject matter that you deal with, what you end up finding is that you become less and less tolerant of ignorance. People who have just chosen to talk about something that they know nothing about 
you become far less tolerant. The more that you understand, the more that you will be able to validate your beliefs, and the more that you'll be able to walk in the, in the character, nature, power, and truth of God with total confidence, okay? Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. Now, a couple of years ago, I've done, and I've done these periodically over the years, I did a class on apologetics and hermeneutics. And um, now, when I do these classes, I always, the first thing we start off with is the Bible, and we just kind of go right after what is this thing that we have devoted our lives to. And, uh, you know, what is it, how did we get it, and why are the books that are in the Bible in the Bible? You know, how did, how did this thing come about? What is, what is this thing that we're following and reading and, 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 you know, giving our lives to? And it can be very disorienting to, honestly, people who don't have an in-depth understanding of that process. And it can, it can, you know, if you're just kind of coasting along as a Christian, it it can kind of, it can kind of set you back on your bum. And, um, now I have, I have full permission to share this just so that you're totally, totally aware. Now, in the second class, after the second class, one person in particular, Leah Parkin, those are a lot of people uh, know her, um, a lifelong Christian came to me and said, um, Pastor, I, I don't even know what I believe anymore. I don't, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to make of this stuff. This is, this is, this is, this is really, this is really causing me problems. I don't know, you know, and, and, and she didn't know if she wanted to continue with the class. Now, here's the thing. She knew that she believed, but what she had never been confronted with was the difficulty in proving it and beginning to understand the fundamentals of what she believed. Now, what she actually said to me in that, in that, in that class was, I wish I could go, could go back before I knew this because I was happier. <laughs> Which I personally thought was fantastic because I knew she was on a journey that was going to be really amazing for her. Now, Fast forward a couple of years, today, Leah is one of the teachers of the First Principles Discipleship Series, where she is now teaching people how to understand and explain their faith. So that place where she became, um, you know, where, where she had that little crisis, she stuck with it, God blessed it, and now what she thought she knew in ignorance Ignorance is just a lack of understanding. It's not a derogatory term. What she thought she knew in ignorance, now she knows and understands with great faith. And so now she's sharing that with other people. Now there are, there are, there are other teachers for this class as well, but, uh, but Leah's journey I thought was just fantastic because of where she was and where she is now. So just because we have that momentary crisis of faith does not mean that God has abandoned us. God is trying to show us something that is deep and powerful and, you know, and can, can change lives. So it's awesome to see that change, that, that change happen. So, um, it's important to know not only what we believe, but why we believe it. So, um, as we're getting into the book of Acts, one of our first tasks in re- in going through a book like this is to know what we are reading. Now, one of the things that we tend to not do when we read our Bible is a lot of study Bibles will have introductory notes to the to the beginning of the book, and it will tell you who wrote it, when it was written, where in the world it was written, that the people and things that were going on, and it, it gives us an idea of what is happening. And you know, if you don't understand the setting of the book and the, or the setting of the letter. It's very difficult to say with any any degree of certainty that you actually understand what's going on in the letter or in the book. So 
When you're dealing with the book of Acts, this is especially important because one of the things we do as modern Christians, a lot of you have heard me say this over and over again, we make the mistake of thinking that the book that we're reading in the Bible was written to 21st century Christians that live in America and speak English, which is simply not the case. The books were written to, in the New Testament especially, were written to first century believers who were pri- primarily Greek and Hebrew. So you're not only dealing with a, with a, a book that was translated into a different language, you're dealing with a book that was translated into a different culture. First century Middle Eastern culture was an honor-shame culture, where family honor held everything where 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 things were written in very specific ways for very specific reason things things had a much higher value placed on what you did and so this was the culture that existed in the first century for the first century church today in 21st century western america english speaking christians we're not an honor shame culture we're more of a personal accomplishment culture. We, we validate ourselves by what we do individually, not what has, has been done with our family. We tend to focus on us, not necessarily as a group. This isn't good or bad in either direction. It's just kind of the way things work in our society today. So when we're reading, we have to understand what we're reading in order, in order for us to get out of what we're reading the most that we can. So here's, an, here's what's going on. So the book of Acts was written by Luke. The same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke. Um, now, and it was written to the same person, this mysterious man known as Theophilus. Uh, if any of you uh, ladies are looking for baby names, highly recommend that one. Um, you know, uh, just to hear people saying it through high school. Theophilus, how are you doing? Um, so anyway, um, now at the end of the Gospel of Luke, what you find is basically the same thing as the beginning of the book of Acts. It's kind of, it's kind of cool the way it, it sets, it sets itself up. Um, so like the beginning of the book of Acts is sort of like, you know, previously on the Bible, you know, it's like a, it's like a reverse take on this. So if you look at this, Luke 24, 44 through 49 reads like this. It says, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. It says, these are the words which I spoke to you uh, while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Uh, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Excuse me. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Uh, and that repentance and remission of sin could be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So that's that, that the very the, the very last part of the of the of the Gospel of Luke. Now the very first part of Acts verses one through eight read like this. It says, And the the former account I made, O Theophilus, again, wonderful name, um all uh, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. He's talking about the gospel. Like this was, this is what I wanted to do in the gospel. Um, and so this is what I did. And now he's, he's kind of bridging the gap and coming into what he's, to this new book that he's writing, O Theophilus. It says, until the day in which he was taken up after, uh, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
to whom he had also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during the 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. So we see this command on both sides, uh, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me for John truly baptized with water. But you shall baptize with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, um, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Um, He said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the season, which the Father has put uh, in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and, and to the ends of the earth. So, it's pretty obvious that Ru- that Luke wrote this book for a very particular reason and for uh, uh, for a very particular person. He's trying to convey uh, a level of understanding. Now, that being said, what were those reasons? You see, we don't have like Luke. Luke didn't tell us. I, Luke, write the book of the Acts of the Apostles for the following reasons, and here are the points and the topics and things that I'm actually focused on. It didn't come with any of that. All we have is the book. All we have is the letter. Finding the reasons why it was written is probably one of the most important questions that we can ask at the start of any journey when it comes to the book of the Bible. Now, Here's a couple things to think about. Was it written under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to be the standard for all churches of all times? Okay. Now, just to get this out of the way, yes, this was written under the, uh, under the guide, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Without any doubt, that is true. But the question is, was this book written to be the standard for all churches in all times? Because if it was written to be the standard, then we have some issues to deal with. We have some very difficult passages that we're going to have to wrestle with. If it was not written to be the standard, then we have to figure out what it was written to be. Um, see, if we don't know the purpose for the book, then it's very difficult to understand how to apply its teachings. Okay, so let me explain what I mean. Um, if this is the standard, okay, if this book is the standard... Here's a section to uh, to wrestle with. And now, granted, this one's a little bit silly, but you'll you'll understand why I'm doing this here in a second. Um, Acts one four through five says, "And being assembled together with them, he commanded him not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, um, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, um, but uh, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now.' Okay, so if this is the standard, if this is how the church is supposed to do this all the time." Should I, as a pastor, have gone to Jerusalem to be filled with the Holy Spirit before I started my ministry? Now, granted, that's a silly thing because obviously in the book of Acts, we see other examples of that not happening. So obviously that is not, that was not meant, that section was not meant to be the standard for anyone. That creates a problem. If that part was not meant to be a standard, and it's pretty obvious that it wasn't, then how can we claim that the rest of the book was meant to be the standard, right? Um, so if you read, um, so in this section, basically what we're looking at is, was the book of Acts written to tell, written to tell us what to do, 
or was it to inform us about what was done? Now, I want you to think about that pat, that that idea as we move forward. Was this the the determination of what what we should all be doing, or is it simply to inform us of what was done? So, let's look at a couple of other passages and kind of think about how this how this works. So, when you think about the idea of picking elders within the church, check this out. In verse one, uh, 126, it says, And they cast their lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, I want you to think about something. Okay, when is the last time you saw anyone in the church casting lots? Okay, when, when, when would you ever see, could you imagine being in a church service and they say, hey, we're going to be picking elders. So, you know, uh, if we call your name, come up forward, uh, bring, uh, you know, bring your lot and put it in. And we're going to, we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to cast these lots, which this practice is all through the Old Testament when it comes to picking leaders. It's all through the Old Testament. But if you saw that in a church today, you would probably just get up and like walk out. I don't know what is going on with these people because this practice was abandoned in the first century because pagans used the same process and we didn't want the church to be confused with pagan idolatry. So the question is, if this is the standard for what we are supposed to do for all time, is this, is this teaching us what we should be doing? Or is this simply informing us of what was done? It's very clear that this is simply informing us about what was done, okay? Um, now, let's get into one that's just a little bit more controversial. We're going to spend more time on this next week, just so that you are aware of that. But the passage about speaking in tongues, okay? So, Acts 2, verses 2 through 4, and this is a big section within the charismatic church, it reads like this. It says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing wind, a, rush, a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay. So, if we're going to teach that you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved because of this passage, which is what a lot of groups, a lot of churches, a lot of denominations try to do, we have kind of a problem because tongues is not the only thing that happened here. All right? So if you think about this, should, if I'm, if I'm going to say that I'm, I'm, praying in this service for the speaking in tongues. I'm praying that people in this service um, get the gift of speaking in tongues, which, by the way, I do hope you get the gift of speaking in tongues because it is a valid gift for today, and it does have does have um, a, 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 lot of, a lot of benefits, and it is a real, honest-to-goodness gift of the Holy Spirit, so I'm not putting that down at all. The question is, is this what the passage is teaching? And if I'm going to say that you have to speak in tongues in order to uh, in order to be saved because of what this passage says, then I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of wedging myself into this path where if we're going to have the gift of tongues poured out in a service, then technically I should hear the sound of a mighty rushing wind and there should be little tongues of fire on top of people's heads giving them the gift of tongues if I'm just going by this passage. 
Now, I've been in the church for a long time. I've been in the charismatic church for a long time. And I've been to a lot of services where a guy up front was coming in to teach everyone there how to speak in tongues. They were going to teach everyone how to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Before you leave this meeting, you are going to be speaking in tongues. Hallelujah. Okay, great. Not once, and I'm talking a lot of services I've been in this, not once have I heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And I have never seen a little tongue appear over someone's head, giving them the gift of tongues. I have known a lot of people who have functioned in the gift of tongues, and I've been there when they have received the gift of tongues, I've never seen that. You see, if you're going to say that this passage dictates this, now we have a, we have a problem because it dictates a whole lot more than just a gift. It also dictates how that gift has arrived. So we have a problem. So now we have to ask ourselves again the same question. I hope you're seeing a pattern here. Is this passage teaching us what what to do and what should happen? Or is it simply teaching us what did happen so that we can learn and we can, we can understand and, and maybe get an idea of why God does what he does without pigeonholing ourselves into the process of this is how it should happen in all churches for all times because this is the roadmap. Now, folks, we haven't even gotten out of chapter two. <laughs> We're still in chapter two, okay? Um, and it's pretty clear that the book of Acts was not written to be the absolute standard for what the church should do in every situation for all time, but to inform us what was done in the early church and how God responded to it. And that part is so essential what was done in the first century church and what was done when the church was first in its in first growing first spreading out through the world and how god reacted to what the churches did okay the book of acts shows us how the message of the gospel and how salvation found through hope in christ spread from the jewish people to the gentile world it shows us how it was done and it gives us a basic idea of the processes that God blessed during those formative years. It it shows us how to bring the gospel to new areas in ways that God blesses. It shows us how to build a church in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. It shows us how to develop believers and leaders to be honorable servants of the gospel and it shows us how to avoid legalism and spiritual elitism, which is what you find when the book of Acts is misused. You, you end up with a group of people who believe they are better and more equipped and now more spiritual than everybody else because they have adhered to some set of standards that's not actually there. And the list goes on and on. The book of Acts is 28 chapters long, and it covers a time frame of about 35 years. It's kind of like God's home movie of the early formative years of the church. How the church expanded from Jerusalem to the rest of the world and eventually to the person who led you to the Lord. It, it shows us 
how this happens and how God has blessed. And it also shows us things that God did not bless. So we can move in directions that are pleasing to the Lord and avoid the directions that are not pleasing to the Lord. Now, I'm going to wrap this up because we've been going for we're coming up on 40 minutes here. And um, here, here's what I'd like you to do for next week. Today's just the foundation. Next week, we're actually going to be starting into specific passages. And uh, obviously, you know, we're going to be dealing with chapter two and kind of getting this idea of, of tongues and why we believe what we believe and what the passage actually says um, on, on its own. So here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to, over the next week, take a little bit of time, sit down, and there's, this is the book is only 28 chapters long. If you can, read the entire thing in one sitting. If you can't, try to do it in two sittings, but don't break it up in, you know, into, into this long thing. Sit down, take a few hours, get a nice cup of coffee or some cocoa or whatever, and, and sit down and read this thing through as it would have been written, as a letter, as a book, ignore the chapter numbers, ignore the verse numbers, ignore all the headings in your Bible, and just read it like it's a letter written to you. Someone saying, hey, I want to tell you about Christianity, and I want to tell you how this thing started. I wrote to you a a book before talking to you about Jesus and how he came and what he did and his commands before he left us, and now I want to show you what God's servants, what, what the followers of Jesus have done over the last 35 years and how this thing has spread throughout the world. I want to show you what God has blessed, and I want to warn you about what God has not blessed. So read the book with that in mind and ask yourself as you're going through, is this what we should be doing or is this simply what was done? I think what you're going to find is the book of Acts becomes far less of a list of do's and don'ts and far more of a book of encouragement on how God can take a group of misfits and turn them into world changers. I think that's what we have to look forward to. I hope you take the time to do that. Um, uh, I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray for us. If you know of some of the families in the church, I'm not listing any names because I don't know if they want them out there or not. But like I said, there are multiple families within the church who are who are right now dealing with COVID, either from the contact tracing quarantine side or from the virus itself. And if you know any of them, or if you are, or if you're one of them yourselves, um, I'd like all of us to just take a couple of minutes and be praying for these people. God knows who they are. You don't need we don't need names, but just if you can just just bow your head and close your eyes for a minute. Let's just pray for these people for for quick rapid recovery. Heavenly Father. We just want to thank you for what you're doing. Father, we, we, we don't know, we don't know why things happen the way they do, but we know that you do. And Father, we ask that you would intervene in the lives of these individuals, that you would intervene in the lives of these people in our church. And even those outside the church, Lord, those who are affected by this, Lord, if we could be a help to them, Lord, help us understand, recognize how we can be a help and give us the courage and the desire to be that help, Lord. Father, if there are those who are dealing with this illness, who might be dealing with a little bit of pride, not wanting to reach out and ask for help, Lord, I ask that you would speak to them, soften their heart, Lord, help them get rid of that pride so that they can ask the community of believers who is really there to help one another, to be that help to one another. Father, we ask that you would heal them. We ask that you would intervene in their life, that this virus would have the smallest effect on them, Lord, and so they could recover as quickly as possible. Father, we trust that your hand is in the middle of the situation. We trust that you are in this 
time and that you are not surprised by any of this, Lord. Help us to have the courage to be dedicated to walking your path in the midst of this chaos. Help us to stay on mission and not be sidetracked. Father, we bless you today. We ask you to bless us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.